Oh, Father, we just ask and pray that you would teach us what it means to understand your love and the implications of it and uh, become more intimately acquainted with who you are. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you remember way, 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 way back to high school. Any of you remember way back to high school? I didn't have high school on your day, yeah. Well, it was a few years ago for some of us. Some of us are in high school right now, I know. And uh, among all the books of literature that you no doubt read or are reading for high school was one classic American novel called The Scarlet Letter. You remember that book? <laughs> I, uh, I'm reflecting back on when I would have read it in high school, and it likely was one of those books where, and I, uh, this is confession time, but I would say I read it, and I'd fill, out, I'd fill out a report saying that I read it, and then my teacher would show the movie, and I would go back and I'd be like, how did I ever get a good score on that book report, realizing that there was no resemblance to what I said in my book report. But anyway, that's not the point of my story here this morning. Uh, occasionally, I was so inspired by the movie, then I would go back and actually watch, read the book, which was something really cool. But you, know, you remember The Scarlet Letter with Hester Prynne. She had to wear that scarlet A because she had had a child in an adulterous relationship, and it ended up being a pastor in, in Salem, Massachusetts. It was written, of course, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, who himself had come from a long line of Puritans, and he was trying to make some very astute observations about shame that resided around the religious life and the civic life of Massachusetts in those days. But what was interesting was that that story was actually based on true laws and practices in the days of the Puritans in the 1700s. You see, it was true that, in fact, that if you were involved in that sort of behavior, what they would actually do, and the, move, and, and, and the book doesn't actually portray it to this extreme, there was actually laws in place that you had to be brought out into the public square and you were whipped 40 times. Again, the the book doesn't actually show that part, but then you had to wear this A everywhere you went so that people knew that you were an adulterer or an adulteress. And those were the laws that were in the times of the Puritans in in the 1600s and 1700s in Massachusetts. You see, what was going on is that the Puritans fled England because they were persecuted and they wanted to be able to practice their own faith. They wanted to be able to practice their own religion. But what happened was they believed that they were going to set up their own country, their own nation that would be a shining light to all the nations. And in fact, John Winthrop, who became the second governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he had that famous line that the Massachusetts Bay Colony would be the city on a hill where all nations around it would look at it and see that this is what it looks like to be a Christian nation. And so they, they, they constructed their laws in such a manner that it could promote what they perceived to be the proper morality. 
Well, this morning, as we continue on our journey in what I am calling Adventism in a nutshell, again, just five little teachings on Adventism, the crux of Adventism, we're going to take perhaps an interesting turn as we last week looked at the idea that all of these teachings and all of Scripture flows out of the singular thought that God is what? God is love. And we saw the apex of that reality last week as we, as we unpacked Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we understood that by God's grace, there's this really important, significant part of that journey in Gethsemane that we perhaps have been blessed to understand maybe a little more fully, and that is when Jesus went to the cross, when he experienced all of the pain and agony in Gethsemane, it was as if his very eternal existence was being blotted out. His very eternal existence was coming to an end, but he determined that he would save human beings at any cost to himself. Well, something interesting happened after Jesus was there in the garden, Perhaps some of you, if you're familiar with the story, you remember what came next. But Matthew records these words that show us this, this, this dichotomy between the ways of God and the ways of the world. This is how Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 26. Notice the, the key ideas that surface here. It says, Jesus was still speaking. This was as after he's labored in the garden and he's wrestling and he's praying and he's saying, not, not what I want, but what you want, Father, because he was willing to go to the very end to pour out his own life. It says, Jesus was still speaking when Judas the betrayer came up. Now check this out. He was one of the 12 disciples and a large mob armed with, what were they armed with? A large mob armed with swords and clubs was with him. Now, I want you to understand what this is. Notice what Matthew goes on to say. He says, they had been sent by the whom? They had been sent by the chief priests. The chief priests of the, 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 the Jewish religious elite. The very leaders of the Jewish system of faith had sent out these men armed with clubs and swords. That's a very interesting idea in and of itself. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. But they had been sent by the chief priests and the nation's leaders. Judas had told them ahead of time, arrest the man I greet with a kiss. Judas walked right up to Jesus and said, hello, teacher. Then Judas kissed him. Jesus replied, now check out what Jesus says. Jesus replied, friend, my friend, why are you here? I'm fascinated, of course, how Jesus, he calls Judas. He doesn't say enemy. He says, my friend, friend, why are you here? The men grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of Jesus' followers pulled out a sword. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we know that that person, sorry, Peter, was Peter. But Jesus told him, put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting Don't you know that I could ask my father and right away he would send me more than 12 armies of angels? But then how could the words of the scriptures come true which say that this must happen? 
Jesus said to the mob, Why do you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like a criminal? Day after day I sat and taught in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that what the prophets wrote would come true. And all of Jesus left him, all of Jesus' disciples left him and ran away. Check out the dichotomy. Check out the two competing philosophies present in this story. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to lay down his life, and yet the religious people are coming out and trying to take him by force and by violence. Because at the heart of false understandings of God, at the heart of false religious systems, is force and coercion. And these religious leaders, they are trying to enact their will. They are trying to enact their philosophy. They're trying to enact their perspective and their ways of doing life. And so the, way that, the ways that they think they need to do it is by using club and sword. And even Peter, Jesus' disciple, who had been walking with him for three and a half years, he still has this perception that this is the way that God operates. And so he picks out that sword and he lops off the ear of that servant of the, of the priest. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the way we do things. If you want to live by violence, you're going to die by violence. If you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you want to live by fighting, you're going to die by fighting. And Jesus was trying to help Peter and his disciples understand that the way of God is not by using force and coercion. The way of God's love is to lay down your life. You see, this was one of the problems that people had with Jesus is they thought that when the Messiah, the chosen one, God's rescuer would come, they thought that, that God would send some sort of conquering king, right? They thought that, that God would send some sort of ruler who would enact his will by sword. But Jesus came with a different power. Jesus came with a power of love. He came to lay down his life. He didn't come to exert his life. He came to lay down his will. He didn't come to exert his will. Although in some ways, he came to exert his will through the power of love. There's this quote that has been one of the most pivotal quotes in my own thinking that comes from one of, I I quoted this author last week, who was one of the early founders of Seventh-day Adventism. And the way she puts it is is just so beautiful and motivating. Notice what the author proposes here. Says that the earth was dark through the misapprehension of God. As I was putting this on my computer yesterday, uh, Katie was sitting on my lap and I said, Why don't you read this out loud for daddy? And so she starts reading it and she said, Mishap. She, she was fumbling over the words. She said, What does that mean? It simply means a misunderstanding of God. We weren't grasping who God was. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God that the gloomy shadows might be lightened that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by what? By force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love. And love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Now, here's the punchline that I love so very much. Only by love 
is love awakened. Isn't that awesome? Only by love is love awakened. God can only draw a a response out of us, not by using force or coercion or manipulation. God can only do it by the principle of love. And so what he is seeking to do is to reveal his love to us so that we, as fully autonomous, self-governed, self-determined individuals who have our own agency, freely choose by his grace to live according to his love. And so that's what God's trying to do. You see, what God will not ever, ever do is force us to do anything. God will never coerce us to do anything. God will never try to manipulate us to do anything. But here's the deal. The degree to which religion uses force and coercion, it is false. And so what God is seeking to do is to to bring people to a, a, a corporate experience where we discard the ways of force, coercion, and manipulation as a corporate body. And this, this, has, this manifests itself on a corporate level as churches. This manifests itself on a national level as a, as a nation, as a country. As God is trying to help us grow out of the ways of force, manipulation, and coercion. He is trying to help us live ever more simply by appealing to other people's agency and self-determination. And so that happens on a corporate level. It also happens on an individual level. As you and I relate to one another individually, God is trying to help us become more fully autonomous, self-determined people. What happens so many times, however is that we seek to use methods that force people to make decisions we want them to make instead of appealing to them as individual autonomous beings. Sister. Yes. So this is the point. God is, however, trying to mature us out of that. And if I were to still use that sort of tactic on my child who is 37 years old, which I am actually, if my parents were still doing that, we'd have a problem, right? And so God does use, we see throughout the history of his people, like the children of Israel. God had to use those types of tactics, because their maturity was not collectively there that he could simply appeal to their autonomous individuality. And so at the cross, we see the zenith of what God is doing in Jesus, where he is seeking to bring people to a place of maturity where he simply appeals to them as autonomous individuals. And so this is the reality that God is trying to help us understand is that, again, the world, the natural way of the world is to use force, coercion, manipulation. But the way of God is to use love and to appeal to us as autonomous, self-determined 
individuals. And what God is seeking to do, I believe this whole thing, part of what it's all about, is that God is seeking to mature us as human beings such that we grow into our full potential as human beings who are autonomous and self-determined. And let me share a quote with you here. It's by, uh, again, this book I read, I, I think I quoted last week, but these ladies have been reading it, this author for their book club and I'm going to join their book club one of these days when they let me, right? Amen? But it's uh, by a lady. What's that? i got to shave first. <laughs> no boys allowed. But uh, some of you perhaps have read this author. Her name is Harriet Lerner. And what she's talking about is the idea of becoming more fully the self. You like that idea probably, Jim, don't you? Becoming more fully self. And what that merely means is we're becoming more of our individual beings that God has created us to be. And she writes this, notice. Being a self means we can be pretty much who we are in relationships rather than what others wish, need, and expect us to be. You see, we use these tactics in life where we just want a result from somebody else. And so we will resort to subtle manipulation to get them to do what we want them to do. And what this author is proposing, and I believe it's scriptural, is that what God is seeking is that we would only ever operate with one another on the basis of love, not on the basis of trying to coerce people to make a a decision that they may not otherwise do were just simply left up to their own agency. She goes on to say it also means that we can allow others to do the same. It means we do not participate in relationships at the expense of the eye. And when I first read this, I thought, oh my goodness, as a Christian, I'm trying to get rid of the eye. But what she's merely saying there is when she's talking about the eye and the self is one's own identity, individualism. We are not called to surrender our individualism against our will just to make other people happy with us. That's what she's talking about. So, and we do not, she also goes on to say, bolster the I at the expense of the other. So that's where my individualism ends is where it starts encroaching upon your individualism. She goes on to say, there is a price we pay when we betray and sacrifice the self. And again, that's not in the sense of selfishness. That's in the sense of identity and individualism. There's a price we pay when we sacrifice the self when too much of the self becomes negotiable under relationship. What's the term she uses there? Pressures. All this is saying is that when I'm in a relationship with somebody else, I am not going to compromise the integrity of who God has made me so that I can merely make you happy with me. Now, if I want to choose to make you happy, that's different than me feeling obligated to make you happy with me. You understand the difference? And we can unpack that going forward. Maybe if you want to come over some night, we can unpack that a little bit more. You can read the book. But all this is simply saying is that I believe what God is seeking to do is, is, is to grow up a people who are living by the principles of his love and not seeking to use pressure and manipulation and force and coercion. And we have many different ways that that takes. We have many different ways. You know the old guilt trip that we play on our spouse, right? Right? Like, it's, it seems innocent enough, and yet 
what we often are doing is just trying to get them to behave in a way that we want them to behave. And God is saying, no, no, no. What I'm trying to do is grow people up so that they are living simply by freely chosen love. You know, of course, in religion, one of the most tragic and destructive forms of force and coercion is guilt and shame. And religion, unfortunately, has for far too long used guilt and shame as a way to seek to get people to conform to their, their particular whims and their, and their desires. And what God is seeking to do is instill that love so that love is awakened. In the verse I jumped over there in 1 John chapter 4, Jesus, we know, we understand, John says, we love because he first loved us. And again, only by love is love awakened. And so we're, as a denomination, as a whole Seventh-day Adventist denomination, we are a, a denomination that stands firmly on that reality that God is love. And the outworking of that corporately is that we will not force, coerce, or manipulate, and we will not allow or sanction any government agency to use those tactics to force other people to do what we think they should do. And you know what? Back in those 1600s, there arose an alternative viewpoint on the ways of, like, the Scarlet Letter. There was a gentleman that came over from England who moved to to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was a brilliant scholar. He was a brilliant theologian. They invited him to be a pastor of the the largest church in Boston at that time. And he was a very, very devout, committed, uh, pious man. But he had this strange view of what he called soul liberty. That's an interesting term, isn't it? He said he, he promoted this idea of soul liberty, and he had great concerns with the way that people were, in the Puritan days, were forcing others to do what they might not otherwise do. Like, you know, in those days, they would fine you. The government would fine you if you didn't go to church on Sundays. And they had all these regulations on so-called Sabbath-keeping. And, you know, if you were smiling too much on the Lord's Day, they would fine you. Stuff like that. And this gentleman came along and said, no, this is not the way that I understand God to operate. God is a God fundamentally who honors freedom of conscience and freedom to worship as you please. And it was such a revolutionary thought. Eventually, they put him on house arrest. His name was Roger Williams. They put him on house arrest. And and, uh, in in the dead of winter, He escaped out into the wilderness of Massachusetts. Yes, there was wilderness in Massachusetts back in those days. And he was actually cared for and fed by the Native Americans. And they eventually eventually gave him shelter such that he was able to make his way all the way down to this place that is now known as Rhode Island. And he founded what became Providence, Rhode Island. And he started what is known, was known as Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations, which is actually the name of Rhode Island today. Just a little trivia for you. It has that whole name, Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations. And uh, he introduced a revolutionary, never, ever before achieved 
in human history, he divorced the church from the state. It had never happened before anywhere else in the history of the world where the government was not seeking to enforce worship upon its subjects. The government actually allowed its citizens to choose whether they would be a part of any particular faith or not. And Roger Williams harbored all of these outcasts that people like in Massachusetts, like the Quakers. Roger Williams didn't like the Quakers, but he said, you're welcome to to live in Rhode Island. He said, I'm going to debate you, but I'm not going to force you to do anything that you don't feel like your conscience can let you do. And so Roger Williams said a number of really interesting things, but two of the things he said was, it is a true mark of a false church to persecute. And he said, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. He actually said something even more drastic that I didn't feel like putting on here, just I didn't want to trigger anybody. But he, 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 uh, he compared forced religion to what a man forces upon a woman against her will. He said that it's just the most terrible thing. And he had such an extreme commitment to what he called soul liberty. Because he understood that only by love is love awakened. So, so how can you and I, how can you and I, corporately, as God's people, but how can you and I, as individuals, as we relate to each other, how can you and I practice this great perspective on love where we want to honor other people's individualism. We want to honor other people's freedom. We want to honor their agency, their self-determination, recognizing that love is actually the greatest force that the universe has ever experienced. And we know that when love is awakened in our hearts, it echoes back to God. And love awakens love, which awakens love. And so on and on and on it goes, where we give people the freedom and the space to pursue interacting with others purely on the basis of that. And if our actions are attractive to others, they'll choose those things themselves rather than us trying to force or manipulate them into doing it. So, as you reflect on that this week, I don't know what that's going to look like in your life, but maybe just recognizing that God is seeking to bring us more fully into that development of self-agency, self-actualization, Jim. Can I say that? As we seek to be the agents that God has designed us to be. He's not trying, as I said a few weeks ago, he's not trying to micromanage us. He's not trying to control us. He's not trying to manipulate us. He's trying to help us grow into his image as self-determined, self-agents by his grace. So, Ben and Alyssa, do you